The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So over the last many weeks, um, we've been looking at the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and um, continuing that conversation. So um, we're in the middle part of the Eightfold Path and the aspect of ethics. So the Eightfold Path we can consider as tools or um, practices that the Buddha suggested to help us to orient um, towards a ease and peace in our minds and hearts. And in his, in his own journey, he was asking the question, is it possible to be free from suffering? He looked around the world and saw that people were struggling and suffering around aging, illness, and death. And these things are not stoppable. Um, But he wondered if it's possible to not be struggling with these truths of impermanent experience, unreliability in our experience. And so uh, this was a question he asked in his own journey. And... uh, he found in his own experience a possibility to release some activities in our mind. He found that there's a kind of a, a, a tightening in our mind around these experiences of impermanence and unreliable uh, experience and that we basically, we fight those truths. We fight those truths and we don't like them. We don't want them to be there. We suffer when they happen. We suffer in anticipation of them happening. We try to organize our lives so that they won't happen, to, to defer them. Um, and, and, uh, and, and so he said that the movement in there, he, he called that movement craving, that that is really the, the source of why we suffer, He said that the actual experiences of aging, illness, death, that we can, essentially, I I think we can come to a kind of an inner peace with those and not fight with them. And it is the not fighting peace, the not fighting part, where our peace lies, our freedom from the suffering lies. And so he really was pointing to um, ways in which our own mind participates in why we struggle and suffer and how we might be able to transcend that, to release those habits and patterns. And so he he found that that was possible in his own experience. Um, he, he, He pointed in his own experience to this release from craving at a very deep level. And um, when he understood this, it is said that he reflected to himself, wow, this is pretty subtle, <laughs> this kind of... I mean, there's some obvious ways in which we crave and hold on and push and pull around our experience, obvious reactivity. But, but it's like that kind of attitude of mind of wanting things to be a certain way goes so deep. 
It goes right into just about everything that we, every experience that we have, we have this kind of push-pull around. And so he, he is said to have reflected this understanding around craving is so subtle. People aren't going to get it. People aren't going to understand it when I try to talk about it. But then he had more thoughts and he thought about some of his um, um, companions that he had been practicing with uh, and, uh, and thought, you know, they probably will understand. Maybe I should go find them and tell them what I've discovered. Because they had separated. Um, they, they, they were doing more ascetic style practices, the other five people he had been practicing with. And the Buddha had recognized that that path the practice of denying and um, mortifying the body was not going to answer the question he had. And so these, uh, the, these, these two, the, he separated from that group of people he'd been practicing with. And so he did go and find them. He went and found them. And uh, the first thing he taught them was the Eightfold Path. He said, this is what I've, this is what I've learned about how to, uh, to practice. So that was the very first part of the teaching. And then it's interesting because people always think that the Four Noble Truths was what he's taught, he taught there. But the very first part of the teaching was he, he taught the Eightfold Path and then he went into the Four Noble Truths with them. So he taught both to this group of people. And the Four Noble Truths is essentially, um, it's a kind of um, a, a framing of our human condition. He said, there is suffering is the first noble truth. There is suffering. Uh, suffering is a truth of human experience. The uh, arising of suffering comes with this kind of craving in our minds. And so here in this noble truth, he's not referring to the kinds of suffering that are inevitable or the kinds of unpleasant experience that are inevitable, the aging, the illness, the death separation from what we're loved. These things will happen to us. But as he found in his own experience, it was the relationship or the uh, inability to align ourselves with this truth of things being unreliable, impermanent. Um, And so he he pointed to, so, okay, so the craving that leads to suffering, this, this this is kind of the linchpin for us in terms of being able to transcend our, uh, our suffering. And he said, the ending of that craving is the ending of suffering. And the pathway to understanding that for ourselves, to freeing our own minds, is this Eightfold Path. And so the Eightfold Path we can think of as the Buddhist pointing for us of engage in this way, you can understand then what I have understood. He, he did say that this is not something to be believed, you know, that... There is a way in which we have to have some faith in what he taught and pick it up and engage. And that's, you know, kind of in the first two uh, aspects of the Eightfold Path. He framed his understanding of this kind of movement of craving and um, the roots of craving uh, being greed, aversion, and delusion. And that those are the roots that create suffering in our experience. And so he, he started with his kind of expl- explication of the problem of our human experience, 
that the, the, the mind's participation in our experience through this craving, through greed, aversion, and delusion is why and how we feel um, stress, suffering, dissatisfaction, many different flavors of what is meant by this Pali word dukkha, which is often translated as suffering. So he framed the, the, you know, his understanding and said, you know, this is the basis. You know, you need to understand this. And then the, uh, the practice and the, paths, the path can unfold from this understanding. And so there's some degree of uh, maybe willing to check it out for ourselves. It's not a wholesale, yes, believe this and you'll be freed because you believe it. It's a have faith in this understanding and act, have intentions to act out of that uh, teaching and through that action you will find for yourselves some of the um, freedom that the Buddha pointed to. So the, the first two aspects of the Eightfold Path are this wise view, this framing of what's the direction, how, what's happening in our minds essentially. And there's many different ways that's explained and explored I think in this uh, series I think we spent about eight weeks on wise view. So <laughs> there's a lot to talk about with wise view. Um, um, but just that, that kind of central understanding of this kind of the mind that's in relationship to the impermanent, unreliable nature of the world, that's where we have some degree of a capacity to change our minds, change the, the way our minds relate Essentially, our minds relate in a certain way, not because of hard wiring, but because of how we've been trained, of how we've been conditioned. And there's some, some very deep um, human um, conditions and even life kinds of, uh, you know, much of uh, the animal kingdom also has this kind of movement of wanting to move towards pleasant and get rid of the unpleasant. And, and so that movement is very deeply embedded in our, in our evolutionary biology. But it's not hardwired in us as humans, unlike for some animals. And this is part of what the Buddha discovered too, that it is possible to change our minds, that we can recondition our minds. It's essentially, you know, we've been being conditioned for our whole lives and uh, if you know the the, the Buddhist um, kind of uh, cosmology also understands multiple lives and that those multiple lives have also been conditioning us um, but I, you know you don't have to believe that part for me actually it's it's enough to recognize the conditioning that's happened in this life uh, and yet you know it's not when we can recognize it as conditioning we can begin to uh, pick up some different choices. We can make some different choices because in a moment, the next aspect of the Eightfold Path, the wise intention, in a moment, um, our choices are, are kind of revealed or we choose to act based on intention. And that moment of intention, the moment before we act, we can know that. We can know we're going to act before we act and in that knowing we're going to act before we act, we can also know something about why we're going to act and uh, choose. We have enough uh, capacity in our minds to choose when we understand uh, this direction 
of choice, the, the motivation behind this, perhaps motivated by greed, aversion, delusion, that direction lies more greed, aversion, and delusion, more being caught in that cycle of resisting this truth of impermanence. And there's also the possibility of seeing that there's a whole different set of intentions that can, we can bring to bear that our minds can actually tap into of love, of compassion, of wisdom, of patience, of generosity, kindness, care, just that simple caring that um, can take us in a completely different direction. And so the, the seeing of our, or the, the, the possibility, so this is again the Buddha pointed to being able to recognize intention and acting from wise intention an intention that's based in understanding, acting out of greed and aversion and delusion, will just reinforce that, will just reinforce this cycle of suffering. And so when we have the capacity to make a choice not based on those, or to not act out of those, perhaps. And this is really where the the teaching on ethics kind of comes into play. Um, So the next section of the Eightfold Path is uh, how essentially, you know, given given if we are interested in um, finding a way to free our own mind from the struggles that it is engaged in, and understand that greed and aversion and delusion are a, a part of why we are in caught in that cycle, caught in that loop, then there's also an encouragement in our. Um, kind of a relational field in our, in our uh, field of connection with other people, that this is not simply a path where we sit down and look internally, but it is also a path where we look at how we are in community. And so this is an important piece to me, this engagement with, you know, sometimes it feels like we come and sit and we just close our eyes and it's all an internal practice. But the Eightfold Path points to that it's not just an internal practice. It really, it does unfold in community. And that the encouragement is to engage in community in a way that does not add harming into the world. And so the ethical section of the Eightfold Path is, is kind of a practical aspect around um, engaging in activities or, and refraining from, enga- refraining from engaging in activities that would add harm to the world. And so the, um, you know, if we want to free our own hearts and minds from greed, aversion, and delusion. It's helpful, the Buddha says, to refrain from putting actions based on greed, aversion, and delusion into the world. And so he pointed to two key areas and then a third follow-on area. Um, The the two key areas are um, wise speech and wise action. And so wise speech includes uh, areas of... um, not acting out of uh, greed, aversion, delusion, not speaking out of greed, aversion, delusion, speaking kindly, speaking um, for, for um, speaking out of compassion, speaking uh, in ways that would support benefit and usefulness. So these, this is the, the piece that I'll mostly explore today is this aspect of wise speech. And then wise action is... And well, and the Buddha also said that you know so that this is this is in four sections: wise speech, refraining from false speech, harsh speech, divisive speech, and idle chatter. And I'll go into those in a little bit more 
depth in a moment. Um, But essentially the understanding is that when we are engaging in false speech, harsh, harsh speech, divisive speech, idle chatter, that most likely there is some greed, diversion, or delusion motivating that speech. And so that's the reason why to refrain. And it's not simply about refraining because somebody has said you shouldn't do that, but it's, it's kind of about you know, refraining in order to see the movements of mind that are motivating those actions. You know, as we see that, again, coming back to that wise intention, part of the power of our um, practice and seeing our intention and the motivations that accompany it, when we see greed, aversion, delusion, when we see craving at work in our hearts and minds directly in the moment, our system begins to recognize that is not helpful in terms of an experience or direction towards well-being and happiness. And so this... um, This is how our education happens in this practice, is by seeing and understanding the the experience of motivations of anger and aversion and confusion and um, uh, pride and arrogance and uh, all of these kind of reactive emotions. When we see those with mindfulness, we feel into that actually hurts here and now. It doesn't feel good here and now. And that's how the mind begins to learn. It's like our whole motivation for acting out of those qualities of mind has partly been because our mind has thought we've gotten something out of it. And it has been missing that you know, most of the time when we've acted in the past out of greed, you know, it's like that we miss the fact that greed is painful. It's, it's, it, you know, we miss that entirely because our mind is kind of jumping ahead to the having of that thing we want and the feeling that I'll, I, you know, that's, that's where I'll be in control and I will have figured it out and everything's going to be great. And so our mind is kind of jumping ahead into that, that possibility for the future and is missing that right now in this moment, it's actually suffering. And so this is, again, this is some of the subtlety of what the Buddha taught that the, um, This movement, uh, this habit that we have around getting what we want from this craving, that that will be uh, kind of keeping us tied to this cycle of suffering. Now that doesn't mean that this path is simply one of sitting like a lump on the log and not acting. But the paradox is sometimes that when the mind is in that... um, mode of greed, for example, in that place of wanting to get this thing and to have this outcome, um, that mind that's caught in that um, wanting, that greed, um, is, is completely um, wrapped up in the belief, the view that having that thing will make me happy and following through on this wanting is the only way that happiness will happen. So the, the, the belief that's embedded in the, in the greed is, um, it cannot fathom that there would be any other motivation to act for, for our well-being and happiness. 
I mean, the very same action, the very same thing that we do, the, the very same thing that we might say can be motivated from this kind of wanting and craving or it can be motivated from wisdom and compassion and love. And so the, it's not necessarily the action or do, the doing that has to be motivated by this uh, internal kind of craving. It is just that we are so habitually motivated that way that we can't fathom another motivation for acting. So this is, a, this is some of the subtlety of what the Buddha pointed to and why I think he thought, yeah, nobody's going to get this. You know, why, you know they're going to think. And I think I do hear this a lot, that, that people um, hearing, you know, acting out of greed, you know, getting, acting to get what I want, that that is creating this cycle of suffering. It's like, well, why would I ever do anything then if I didn't want something? And so, um, you know, this, this, is, this brings in an understanding of a different kind of a desire. We could almost, we could call it aspiration or, a, you know, in a way, a kind of hope or, but it's not a hope that is tying its um, happiness to the outcome, but it's more of, a, of an opening to possibility and saying, you know, this is the direction and this direction seems to lead towards greater happiness and well-being and, and let's see what happens. So it's not, it's, not, it's not shutting down options. I would say this sense of craving shuts down options. It, it has a one-way kind of this is what has to happen. Whereas the, the other kind of, of a form of desire that can be wholesome um, has more of this open quality, a sense of, hmm, that's a possibility. Maybe I can step in that direction and let's see what unfolds. So the, um, the, um, the refraining from actions, you know, so the Buddha pointed to these specific, in the ethical section, pointed to specific kinds of speech and kinds of action that are almost always motivated by greed, aversion, and delusion. And so uh, in that situation, you know, it's useful to use it as a kind of a wake-up bell. Like, oh, this I need to, to pay attention to. Let's check the motivation. Let's see what's going on in there. And the, the, the transformation of our hearts and minds begins as we begin to recognize that the... Um, the the tightening around that craving. As I said, you know, we, we in the past had, had kind of leapt over that for the purpose of getting the thing that we want or getting rid of the thing that we don't want. And we've missed the actual experience of the craving or the aversion or the delusion or the, 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 the greed. And the, um, the seeing of that is how the mind begins to transform. And so these, these practical aspects of ethics, you know, they sound very similar to um, the, the uh, Ten Commandments in a way, you know, thou shalt not, um, uh, they, you know, refrain from false speech, refrain from harsh speech, divisive speech, idle chatter in the wise speech area, refrain from killing, refrain from taking what's not given, refrain from misconduct through sexuality, um, they, they sound, it sounds very similar. Um, and, and in the, in the way of refraining, there is a similarity, but the practice about it isn't a simple 
a kind of thou shalt not repression kind of mode. It's really important to not simply engage with these with a kind of not going not to do that, better, better kind of stuff that inclination, better stuff that feeling of wanting to say that nasty thing. You know, it's not that because that will, that will actually, that repression of those um, kind of motivations will actually strengthen them. And uh, the, so the, the, the teaching the Buddha points to is to be mindful of those motivations. And so it's a real kind of, he called the, the path the middle path. And it is very much a middle path of, of you know, neither, um, one way we can look at this middle path is neither repressing what's happening in our hearts and minds. And also not expressing when, or committing to this uh, intention to not express when those um, motivations are based in greed, aversion, delusion. And so that, that, um, that middle path lets us neither, expre- neither, neither repress nor express. I mean, those are, those are kind of the only two options we, we tend to think are possible. Um, but the, the, the practice of, can I know? Oh, this is the experience of frustration. This is the experience of confusion or anger or greed. So the, that, the, the middle path is this one of opening to the experience. So not repressing it, allowing the system to feel it, but not expressing it in action. And so this is the, this is the place, this is the terrain of the work around this, this ethical path these ethical sections of the path. Is to, I think of using these, these um, uh, suggestions or guidelines around our actions as wake-up bells. You know, we commit to um, you know, refraining from killing, refraining from taking what's not given, refraining from um, uh, harm through sexuality, refraining from false speech and these other areas of, of wise speech. And... Uh, then when we see ourselves inclining towards them, we might be able to kind of have a pause. Oh, stop. Let me check in. Let me see if I can be mindful of what's happening here. And so this ethical section of the Eightfold Path is really a, um, a support for us to begin to look at the way our minds habitually engage and, and have these habits of greed, aversion, and delusion. It's not to be judging ourselves about that because it is simply conditioned. It is the way that we've been conditioned in our lives. And all human beings have been conditioned this way. We're not alone. It's, it, again, it's very connected to our evolutionary biology. And so the, the, um, this movement is a subtle and kind of mind-turning uh, movement to not neither repress nor express, but to just, what is this experience? And using these um, aspects of refraining from certain actions to help us to see these things. Because certain actions, you know, the movements of our mind can be seen when we turn inwardly with mindfulness. But some of the easiest things to be mindful of, especially early on in our path, are our activities the grosser things that we do. And so um, we can uh, 
start to become aware and mindful of these things in our daily lives and let this be a support for us and support for our, our mindfulness practice. So those two, the wise speech and wise action, are kind of the grounds for the, um, the ethical section of the path. Um, the third ethical section of the path, wise livelihood, um, you know, it's, it's not terribly well defined in the suttas. The Buddha did speak about certain kinds of livelihood that um, would not be um, skillful if you're engaged in this path. And those included, um, you know, so, so these may be things that wouldn't explicitly um, break the other two of wise, of false, spe- of of the of wise speech or wise action, but they are st- they, 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 maybe they're more motivated by delusion or they they're heading in the direction of suffering, and so these things include things like trading in human beings, um, trading or participating in killing beings uh, so you know that well that one was taken care of in the in the um, wise action uh, so being a butcher for instance is is not um, a wise livelihood in the time of the buddha uh, trading in poisons and weapons um, these things were not encouraged uh, so you know in trading in weapons you might not be directly killing but you are participating in the process by which other people might be killing. And so the, the wise livelihood, I, think, I like to think for our own sake, is, um, you know, in many ways is a um, uh, livelihood that will not put us into the position of um, breaking wise speech or wise action and would not encourage other people to be in that position also. So that, that's maybe a, a broader uh, kind of definition of wise livelihood. Um, so a little bit about wise speech. Um, um, I've mentioned the, the four kinds. Well, first of all, I'll just say that um, you know, wise speech as a practice you know, it's, it's a powerful tool for support for mindfulness practice. My teacher, Saira Utejaniya, said at one point in his, before he became a, a, a monastic, he was a layperson for the first 30, 32 years of his life. And um, um, he was a businessman and, um, uh, you know, worked in the, in the market. And he said at a certain point, in addition to the, the five lay precepts, which are also a part of this ethical aspect, um, refraining from killing, refraining from taking what's not given, refraining from uh, creating harm through sexuality, refraining from false speech, and refraining from um, intoxicants, which cloud the mind and lead us to potentially do things that might create conditions for breaking these other precepts. Um, so these, in addition to these five, he said... At some point, I decided to take up the three other speech precepts, refraining from harsh speech, refraining from divisive speech, and refraining from idle chatter as a part of my daily life practice. He said, at that point, when I decided to do that, my mindfulness in daily life really just zoomed. He said, it just really supported the, the capacity, the possibility of mindfulness in daily life to take up these other three wise speech precepts. 
But it is, it is difficult. I mean, here what we're exploring that's somewhat different from sitting practice is, you know, in sitting practice often we think of just letting go of thoughts. It's like, yep, I'm just going to, you know, put thoughts aside and just come back to my breath. And so in our, in our sitting practice we sometimes, it's, I mean, it's not, it's not always easy to set thoughts aside, but we, we, we have the luxury of being able to, to not engage with uh, the content of our thoughts in our sitting practice. We, we've taken this time to uh, look inward, touch in with mindfulness to our physical and mental experience, and we can potentially begin to see, oh, that's a thought arising as an experience, as opposed to, oh, there's a thought and here's the content and that's why it's important for me to be thinking about right now. So it's, it's a very different relationship to thought in sitting practice than you know, in our daily lives where we need thought. You know, thoughts are one of the big evolutionary uh, parts of, of being human that help us to navigate our world. And, um, you know, we need them. We, we can't just simply go by by setting aside thoughts all day long. And so this is another area of, um, you know, in, in daily life practice, bringing in an awareness of content, so not setting aside content and just knowing it as, oh, that's thought. those are thoughts arising, but uh, an awareness of, okay, this is the content. This is content that is useful for me. I need to plan this thing or I need to you know, have this conversation with this person about the situation that we're getting ready to, to do. So you know, there's things that we need to engage in, both with speech and, and action. Um, and so the... the um, um, Every now and then my mind just stops. Lost my thread. So, it, uh, um, in the uh, the speech, I'm trying to find my way back to this. Um, So aware of content, that's where I was. Um, so the, in, in uh, our daily lives, we, we need to have a kind of a um, ability to be mindful with content, with what we're going to say, with what we are thinking in our minds. And so the, a lot of our idea with sitting meditation, you know, content is not so relevant, so we set it aside. And that's a big area of extension of mindfulness in our daily lives, is to the content, to what we're doing, what we're saying, what we're thinking. And not simply setting it aside and say, oh, mindfulness means not having that going on in my mind. Because we need, we need thoughts, we need um, the content to engage in our lives. So the um, the... Uh, kind of practice is about recognizing, okay, so this is the content. These are the kind of um, words I'm going to say. This is, this is the conversation that's happening. This is the, the thing that I'm doing. And how am I with that? So it is a kind of a, an awareness of the context here. And it is possible to be mindful of both the content of our conversation, of our uh, thoughts, and to be uh, aware of how we are with it. It's a little bit of a broader kind of awareness. 
not so focused as we are sometimes in sitting practice on just the mindfulness of some particular experience like the breath. This is a much broader kind of mindfulness. And so this is an important um, piece of, of working with wise speech is beginning to become aware of the content of our speech. And so this is hard. We are, we are trained in many ways to lose mindfulness or we have a ha- habit of losing mindfulness when we are speaking. And so it's not easy. But we can kind of begin to attune to these particular areas of false speech, harsh speech, divisive speech, and idle chatter, and, and maybe allow some of those as to help us wake up a little bit in this area of speech. So... Um, you know, we usually almost automatically speak without being aware so much of what we're going to say. And one helpful tool, and practicing with this can be useful. You know, if you can find somebody that you know who's interested in exploring wise speech or mindful speech, um, um, pausing before you speak. Now that kind of activity, pausing before you speak, is not probably going to work necessarily in all social situations, in fast-moving business meetings, for instance. Um, um, And so it can be useful to practice first in a situation where somebody understands, yes, we're going to practice pausing before we speak, so that this kind of little bit of stilted quality of, did you really finish speaking? Okay, and then there's a pause. And then the next person speaks. So having those gaps in our um, conversation is actually often a place where we feel a little bit uncomfortable. And that can be a reason why we jump in. So it can be, it can be really helpful to explore this pause with a friend, you know, with somebody that you want to practice this with. Um, and then also it's, um, it's helpful in if you start to see some of these areas of um, unwise speech start to happen to begin to check into hmm, why might I be doing that if you if you can catch or know hmm, the thing i 'm getting ready to say is not true, then looking into again the important part of this is not to just repress that but to be curious to look in what 's going on there what 's the motivation around this? So I um, just want to briefly talk about each of these four kinds. Um, and then we'll see. Um, I want to leave, hopefully leave a little bit of time for some questions and see if maybe we want to talk about why speech a little bit more next week to, to flesh it out a little bit more. Um, um, so false speech. False speech is um, speaking not, what is not true with the intention to deceive. So we might speak something that is not true and not know that it's not true. That would not be considered false speech because the, the activity of false speech, the, 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 the kind of the, the area here that we're looking at is this, um, the area where we're intending to deceive someone. That part, that intention to deceive, that part is based in greed, aversion, or delusion. And so that's, that's kind of an important part around false speech is the speech with the intention to deceive. 
So this kind of speech can be motivated from greed, aversion, or delusion. Greed, it might be aimed at uh, a kind of a lie to uh, gain some kind of a personal advantage, um, some wealth status or something. Um, then uh, it might be motivated out of aversion, uh, a lie intending to hurt or damage others. Uh, out of delusion, it might be um, a lie that's a kind of an exaggeration just to make the story more interesting or something. And th- that might be a little greed in there too of, of wanting to be entertaining or something like that. Um, um, so the, the, there can be many, many flavors in there. So if you're getting ready... And the, uh, another, another one that, that often comes up is, is the white lie, what we, we call a white lie, uh, a lie that's intending to, to not hurt somebody, um, you know, that, that we don't want to let them know something. Um, and so that's a little bit delicate, um, you know, that this is a place to kind of explore what's the motivation um, and is there another way to say what you're going, you know, to, to say what you're going to say. You know, at one point I, I realized that my answering machine had a white lie on it. You know, it's like, I can't take your call right now. You know, and I was, you know, I basically was not picking up my phone most of the time because of so many marketing things. And so, uh, you know, I, when I realized that, it's like, you know, that's not true. I can take the call for, you know, it's like I'm, get, I'm standing here listening. I'm <laughs> pick up the phone if it's somebody. And so I changed the message that said, please leave a message. And, and you know, there, there's no lie in that, right? It's just, it's just like, please leave a message. <laughs> and it's like, wow, it, I realized in seeing that that I thought I had to explain myself. That was a hugely freeing recognition, you know. And there's so many times where, you know, I'm, I'm saying something, uh, you know, it's like, well, no, that time doesn't work for me. You know, that, that, that's usually true. You know, I can say that time doesn't work for me. I don't have to say I have something else planned. I don't have to say I can't do it then. It's, or, or, or it's like that time doesn't work for me. Um, so I, it's, it's helped me to kind of, you know, tune and clean up the, the, the or this, this urge to, to, to have to explain, you know, why I can't do something or why, you know, I'm engaging in a certain way. It's like, well, this is what I'm doing. End of story. <laughs> I'm not obligated to explain why. So even that, that message on the answering machine had a little bit of a trying to explain why. Why am I not picking up the phone? I can't answer the phone. I'm not able to take your call right now. It's like, well, so, so just little things like this. It, it kind of was an interesting exploration for me. Um, so another piece around each of these areas of why speech and the, the ethical areas in general is that each aspect is not only you know, connected with something we're letting go of. So you know, we're letting go of the, um, the, the kind of the movements to speak out of uh, in intention to deceive. Um, but also it uh, begins to cultivate a kind of a commitment to truth, a kind of a, an integrity um, so, you know, so this begins to um, uh, support a, a deeper um, quality in our hearts and minds. 
So as we let go of the intentions around uh, greed, aversion, and delusion, we can start to feel some of the, the, the quality of integrity, the quality of you know, commitment to truth coming in. And so the, the, the action of refraining from something is not simply about letting go of the greed, aversion, and delusion. It also supports a picking up or a cultivation of a, of a wholesome quality of mind. And that's true for all of these, all of these um, kinds of um, ethical conduct. Um, then there's another aspect around truth. Um, you know, I was in a relationship at one point where I felt like my partner bludgeoned me with the truth. And uh, so, you know, there's certain times where, you know, the Buddha encouraged with wise speech, another, another kind of teaching on wise speech is not just about these four areas to avoid, but he also said to, to speak when, you know, when do we speak and how do we speak? We speak when it is beneficial and kind and um, timely. You know, so, so is it an appropriate time to speak? And so sometimes we might want to put some kind of truth out there, but it's not the time for it. Or it's not even necessary. What is the motivation for saying something? So it's not just about the motivation when we're, um, when we're in getting ready to engage in one of these kinds of false speech or, or harsh speech or divisive speech or idle chatter. But even when we're going to speak, what is our motivation? Sometimes speaking truth can come from aversion or come from greed. So that's really the most important piece. And so the, the, the additional kind of encouragement around, is it true? Is it useful? Is it kind? Can help us to decide or determine, is this the right time? Is this the right time to speak? And then um, divisive speech uh, the definition of divisive speech is speech intended to divide people. This seems like it is so much a part of our culture right now. Um, this, you know, this, this separation tr- speech that's intended to uh, divide rather than unify. And so the, uh, the divisive speech is speech intending. Again, the intention here is the important piece to, to notice. We may say something that divides people unaware that it will be divisive. That doesn't give us a complete pass in that, you know, when we notice or see that division has happened, it can be useful then to say, wow, what did I not understand? You know, I didn't think that was going to be divisive, but, but it was. So can I learn something? So that's another way to engage here is to, is when we are not intending to act in a certain way, but the the effect is that way to, to see what we can learn to kind of like, ask questions and, and see if we can understand why that was divisive. And so the divisive speech is speech intending to create separation, intending to create division, and intending to create ill will. And it's usually motivated, motivated out of aversion and hatred. The opposite side, the, the, the performance side, or what, um, what we cultivate, the quality, the wholesome quality that's cultivated is Unification and um, uh, harmony. When we are not, when we're not speaking from that, the the movement begins to speak language that harmonizes and that unifies. So that's the the side that gets cultivated there.
Then harsh speech is speech uttered intending to cause the hearer pain. Um, usually motivated by aversion or anger. Um, it may be actual words that are spoken harshly. I mean, it may be the words themselves that are harsh. It also can be the tone. Um, so that that's, that's a piece of, of something to notice, is, is the tone in our voice. Um, some different kinds of, of harsh speech that we can just call out. Abusive speech, speaking in anger with bitter words. Slanderous speech, speaking, um, um, uh, you know, f- basically that's kind of in false speech too, speaking uh, um, about somebody in uh, intending to, to have others not, um, um, not believe them or you know, to just slander, slander them in some way. Insult, rude speech, and um, sarcasm. You know, the, the kind of speaking words that might sound uh, kind, but the tone has the opposite effect. So this, this part, we are uh, mindful or aware somewhat of the choice of our words, as well as the tone in our voice. And again, the, the intention here in terms of the releasing of the, the harshness is the cultivation of friendliness. We begin to cultivate that uh, care and courtesy. A good place maybe to practice it with this is on the phone with um, uh, somebody on customer support. <laughs> and then idle chatter, um, the fourth kind. Uh, this is the definition of this is pointless talk that communicates nothing of value. So essentially, Talk without intention, you know, unintentional speech in a way. Um, monastics are encouraged to keep their talk to talk of the Dharma. But lay people, we, you know, we have many other things that we need to talk about. And in fact, there are times I've, I've in what, looking at this in my own speech, there are times, especially when I'm meeting somebody for the first time or... Um, you know, kind of just kind of come landing with somebody. It's like, what have you been up to? That kind of thing. It might sound like uh, idle speech, but it, what it's doing, the intention under it is a kind of like, okay, we're coming together. We're kind of trying to figure out where we are, you know, what's going on. And, and some of that gets communicated through body language. Some of it gets communicated through tone of voice. And so the speech of, oh, isn't it beautiful weather today or whatever, the, the words may seem idle, but the intention behind it is a kind of a resonance in coming together. So, you know, that's not purposeless speech. It's, 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 to me at least, it's got some measure of intention behind it. But the, the difficulty there is that we may tend to kind of go on with that longer than is necessary. And so that's a place to, uh, to explore. And the... Um, Another piece that, that can be interesting to check into is here is how much we are taking in idle chatter. It's not about what, only about what we're saying, but you know, how much we're taking in idle chatter you know, in terms of listening to the radio or uh, you know, are perusing the internet, what we're taking in. You know, sometimes that has a big effect on us. And so being real conscious about what we're letting into our minds 
um, this, uh, it, the cultivation, what we cultivate by practicing with this, refraining from idle chatter, is clarity of mind. So, um, you know, when we engage with these as practices, and I'd, 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 lo- I'd love for you to be able to, to, to pick this up and, and play with this and, um, and see how it affects you. And, and maybe we can have more of a conversation next week about, about these pieces because there's, there's only a couple minutes. So I'll, I'll open it now to just see if there's anything. Um, actually, maybe what we could do is just say, are there questions? And I could make some notes for, for next week. If there are questions, yeah. Question oh, and use the mic. Okay. Is is there's a light on the side that? There it goes. Turn green. Okay. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, just um, unwrapping. The three, uh, greed, aversion, and delusion. Um, does craving fall kind of under greed? or? Um, I would say that actually, um, I'll just speak to this now briefly, um, um, but that's a whole good topic for a talk. <laughs> um, uh, craving actually includes them all. Uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, we, could, we can crave for something to happen we can crave for something to not happen. That would be the aversion side. And then the being a kind of caught in the craving, the believing the craving is necessary is the delusion. delusion. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Uh, the role of silliness. That's a great. That's kind of in the idle, idle piece. Yeah. But yeah, but that's beautiful. Yeah, I think I think that's a good, another good um, kind of uh, one to look at the intention there. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, is it breaking the ice? Is it livening people up? And yeah, yeah. I think it, it. And again, you know, sometimes silliness might be purposeless or might be thoughtless. Um, but again, you know, it's not so much about what we do in some of these areas. There are gray areas in all of these. That actually may be the place to kind of go next week is to really kind of explore the gray areas of each of these uh, four kinds of speech. So maybe I'll take, I'll take that up. <laughs> and it's time to stop. So thank you all. They might be idle.